from the crypt. What is up, freaks? Welcome back to Tales from the Crypt. We had a very special episode today. This is the first ever outdoors edition of Tales from the Crypt. It is a beautiful Tuesday afternoon here in Brooklyn. Uh, I decided to record this episode on the roof with my guest. Uh, let's jump right into it. I don't want to keep you freaks waiting any lo- longer. I'd like to introduce you to my guest, Parker Lewis. Parker, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me on. It's been a long time coming. It's been a very long time coming. We've been having a lot of conversations for many years now, uh, and I'm very excited to finally get one on record. Uh, for you freaks that don't know, Parker uh, has a vast knowledge of economics and Fed policy in particular. Uh, former and current advisor to Kyle Bass, correct? Off the record. Off the record? All right. <laughs> we could start over. No, no. <laughs> I'm kidding. Okay. Yes. Um, and currently working at Unchained. That's why he's in town. We uh, we were in Tribeca last night. Unchained Capital uh, was unveiling their, their vault solution, uh, demoing it in person. It was great to see Drew, Joe, Parker, and team uh, showing their product in person. And uh, slight disclaimer... Uh, Unchained is obviously a sponsor of this podcast, but Parker is a friend first before a sponsor. Um, so let's jump into what you guys are building at, at Unchained. Um, that's not going to lie. My, my co-host on Rabbit Hole Recap is, uh, is always curious about multi-sig solutions and the products that are available and, and how individuals interact with them. So how are you guys approaching this and what are you guys doing that you think is different on the market right now? Yeah, so again, thanks for having me on. Um, so we're just up here in New York. We officially released our Vaults product about uh, three weeks ago at South by Southwest. We're based in Austin, and so we released it at our Austin, it's the uh, Austin Bitcoin Developers Meetup that Justin Moen, or it goes by Justin Moon on Twitter, hosts, and, and we host the group there at our office in Austin. So we released it about three weeks ago. Really, the idea behind the Vaults platform is um, when Unchained was co-founded by Joe and Drew, Joe uh, Kelly and uh, Drew Bonsell in 2016, and then they started lending in mid-2017, they were lending their own capital and decided that they weren't going to be willing to outsource that core function of security and custody to a third party, such as a, as a Coinbase or a Gemini. And so they really set out at that point in time and committed to it to deliver the best security when, when loans were outstanding and when, when they were securing their borrower's collateral. And over time, when I met them, um, after I left working in a full capacity at, at the hedge fund I was at in Dallas, uh, we were, we were having, I moved back to Austin. We were having conversations about custody, and they had the custody piece that was underlying the loans because it was the most important part of the loans. How do you actually secure collateral? And the more that we had conversations, the more it made sense for them. Um, the ideas that we were talking about was to actually release that product as a standalone service um, and that really the the core function there would be to deliver people better security um, kind of looking at the problem from the perspective of um, in the in the actual you know institutional piece of the industry everybody views multi-sig as a security enhancement but the longer you stay in bitcoin the more likely you are to self-custody and those people that that are most security conscious view sovereignty not just as a philosophical um, value, but also as a security feature, they generally hold their Bitcoin on single keys or single key devices, whether it's a ledger or treasure or a cold stored air gap computer. And so the, the problem that we, were, we set out to solve was how do you deliver multi-sig to that core group of people um, so that we can help them better secure their Bitcoin, but then over time, we can our, our core strategy is to then uh, sell through additional financial services. So solve a problem for people uh, at a low cost, and then over time, sell the loan products that 
currently means dollar loans. Eventually, we'll we'll crack the the code in, in terms of the way that we're comfortable of lending Bitcoin out, and then in the future, it's helping to fulfill payments and converting from dollars to Bitcoin or just um, anything that a bank does. We'll we'll likely do. Um, so we were up here in New York to to show it off to the actual demo off to people up here in New York. We've obviously got a lot of friends in New York that care about Bitcoin and care about private key management. And that's really what we're doing. We're, I think, on the right side of the fence of helping people understand that key management is important. Um, the way that we think about it is pushing security to the edge of the network. And that if we put keys in people's hands and in a way that creates redundancy and allows them to have a financial partner uh, alongside them, that that is the best way to tr achieve the best security outcome. So. Yeah, no, the security first mindset is something that I appreciate uh, immensely, especially uh, in Bitcoin. And that's what Drew touched on last night, and which we touch on a lot in this podcast, is that Bitcoin is a bearer asset. And the, uh, the ways in which you approach the custody and security of this is, is vastly different than what uh, your typical consumer and investor is used to with the, uh, the incumbent financial system. Um, so one thing, your product in particular, I've been thinking of ways which I'm going to use, and I think this is uh, a very good time to like jump into an example of a potential use case. It's like TFTC, Tales from the Crypt, we're like building stuff and eventually want to make this into a revenue-producing business. And uh, the way I see potential scenario of interacting with Unchained's vault is setting up a vault and the multi-sig with a business partner and... A basically keeping our cold storage there funds there that uh that we make in in bitcoin uh via the service and then eventually if we get enough in that account just use your loan service pretty easily and this is the access to capital um with this product again security first is incredibly immensely comforting as a as, as a business owner and then the access to capital on top just added on top of that seems like a no-brainer for yeah. somebody thinking of like a closed loop bitcoin economy yeah, th and that's really how we think about it. We think about it as first help people secure their assets. And then if we have those additional financial products layered on top or fully integrated with it, that you can then access them, access them very easily. And so what we also, when we set off on this course to, to carve out the security piece that was backing the um, collateral security for loans, was that not everyone today needs loans. Um, but if but, but when they take a loan from Unchained, they were really taking two services bundled as one. They were taking um, the loan itself and accessing the liquidity, but the most important thing that a person in Bitcoin, if they're in the market for a potential loan, is how is that Bitcoin secured? How, you know, is, it, is it transparent? Is it being held in a dedicated address? And so the, the idea being that because that is such a hard decision point um, and it's less about do I need a loan and more about do I trust how this actual Bitcoin is being stored that we can a reach a, a much broader customer set by just fulfilling the, the security piece in a way that allows them to control private keys and that if they ever need the actual Bitcoin um, to, to access liquidity and they don't want to um, have a tax inefficient way of doing that through a buy and sell, then they actually can just with a couple clicks of a button access a loan through our platform as well. And so today, again, that's dollar loans, but in the future, um, we'll, we'll integrate additional financial services next to the, to the vaults. Yeah. I think we need to take a moment to, uh, to quell the fears of the hardcore Bitcoiners out there who are hyper security, uh, conscious and why are you in, why are you, in, uh, interacting with a third party bitcoin bitcoin's like on your own keys on your own bitcoin and, and i think it's we're at a stage where we have to get 
hardcore Bitcoiners. I would like we're not even like trying to go after no coiners or people who haven't adopted Bitcoin yet. It's like hardcore longtime hodlers to convince them like, hey, there are ways to to utilize these services and keep your your privacy and other parts of your stash and stuff like that. And so that's one thing that I've been watching unfold last few months in particular is okay. That was the last in particular. Hopefully. Um, is sort of the backlash against these financial products on top of Bitcoin. And um, it's trying to sort of make people aware that, hey, this is, these products are going to be a thing and you don't have to interact with all of them. And when you do, there's smart ways to do it, which I think you guys are, are building a great smart way to interact with these type of products. Yeah, I think if, if at the core Bitcoin is money, um, which is how I think of it, and I think of how the majority of the the people that, that we interact with and the people that are our core customers or the people that we believe are our, our target customers think about Bitcoin, that the way to add value uh, on top of just the security piece is additional financial services. If, if Bitcoin is money, then people over time will increasingly need financial services, um, whether that's a business and, and, a, and a safe way to receive payments or, um, you know, paying people or you know if, if you're a retail company and you need to be accepting multiple payments throughout the day whether it's accessing something like 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 lightning or just having a secure vault that you can um, publicize your public address and, and actually secure those funds in a way that um, you're comfortable with or if you have a multi-person organization so that you can interact with those funds in a way that creates hierarchies at an account level so that that is how we think about it and then beyond the vault as you take additional financial services you only um, see that sovereignty to the extent that you take financial services and then um, depending on what type of service and the, and the percentage that you know if you if you need to access a loan only to the extent that you need that loan so it wouldn't be putting a hundred percent of your assets up it would just be the extent to which you need the liquidity so that's how we that's how we view it and we understand also and, and the other things that we try to solve for are our privacy um, but but principally what we're you know trying to solve for at the same time and it's all about striking a balance is is achieving that higher level of security um, first and foremost and privacy is a piece of that security apparatus but there's also a reality that um, if you believe that multi-sig is a is a more secure way um, or a more redundant way to secure your bitcoin if you if you ever put anybody any other entity in into that quorum as a single key um, it's very difficult to achieve 100% anonymity. So for, for people who are looking for 100% anonymity, um, there, there just may not be anything that um, we can solve for 100%. There's a lot of things that we do, and we'll be more public about the things that we do to make sure that names aren't de-anonymized or linked to actual addresses, but it's also why we open source our application, and we're working on an interface to go with that open source application where for those people... That, that do value that higher security but don't want additional financial services and do value 100% anonymity, that, that those open source tools are really what they should use to secure their Bitcoin. But over time, we think that, that Bitcoin owners are going to need additional financial services and will be there hopefully to be a partner. How the hell did you get here? Like you, that's what I want to focus on most of this uh, discussion is how you got here, how you got into Bitcoin, how you ended up uh, at Unchained, what principally sort of drove you to Bitcoin. Yeah, so um, if I just go through my 30-second um, Oscars thank you um, tour of the people that I probably most, you know, am appreciative of helping me to just understand Bitcoin, um, I think I probably learned about it for the first time from Will Cole and my friend Brooks Dudley, you know, both of those guys, um, definitely underrated. Stand-up gentlemen. Stand-up gentlemen, underrated Bitcoiners, um, guys who were 
talking to me about it back in probably 2013 and 2014. Uh, I like to consider myself a reformed no coiner, um, <laughs> but they, they, they helped me understand kind of and get interested in the first place. And then through their relationships with them, helped me get connected with safe, uh, particularly Will Cole and his brother Napoleon got me connected with safe. Just very, I was actually working for a hedge fund at the time and uh, was going up to Canada to diligence, a gold company. And it was called, uh, it was called bit gold. Mm-hmm. Um, and is that Roy Seberg saying? Yeah, Roy Sabak. So yeah. I also learned a lot from Roy. Don't agree with Roy on everything, but I, you know, when it comes to understanding debt and thinking about debt and thinking about the Fed and um, gold, and it, it was a combination of talking with him and and Safe that really helped me understand the monetary aspects of gold. Probably, you know, four years ago when I met them, I was somebody who thought that gold wasn't money or that it was a barbaric relic, and that it was actually going through both the understanding of why gold was money um how it emerges money how uh, um, how it was similar to bitcoin at the same time that i was going down and doing macro research on the fed that that combination of those three things really led me to bitcoin um and i i don't know which singular thing but i think it it was it was the combination it was understanding first and foremost what money was which is fairly remarkable that you can go get an economics degree um, and not learn that. And not learn that. Right? <laughs> yeah. I, d- I you did go that. To, that happened uh, to me. You go to Safe University for... For two days. Yeah, you know, maybe three months, six months, you'll get there. <laughs> right? No, but it's crazy. And... Uh, so you are what I would call, f- consider a Fed supermensch. Uh, you understand uh, the interweavings of the Fed and their policies, particularly uh, over the last decade. Uh, You've done a lot of research and have written one of my favorite economic papers that's been released in the last, it's not on economic theory or anything, it's just a a prescriptive description of, or excuse me, a description of uh, the Fed's goalpost moving and just, not even their goalpost, I mean, you documented the Fed's comments uh, between 2005 and 2012 up to that point? Yeah. Yeah, um, so it's uh, it's not my own theory, so it's not this made-up thing called MMT, uh, <laughs> <laughs> which I had never heard of. I worked um, w- I worked for an investment bank for three years, worked in restructuring, worked for a hedge fund for six years, and never heard of MMT until the to the last six months. Last which, six months, really? Yeah. It's popped up like out of nowhere. Popped up out of nowhere. So, but but so when I was working, um, I was working for a hedge fund at the time, and I was. All, you know, I'd been learning about Bitcoin and starting to go down the rabbit hole, but hadn't totally been red pilled. Um, and while I was there, the hedge, the hedge fund I was at had basically shifted from doing a lot of things to doing principal macro trading. So they, they always did macro. But if I came in and was working on long short equity and special event credit, by the time that, you know, I'd been there for four years, it was 80 percent global macro. And that was really what the the sweet spot of the firm was. So in order to to contribute, I needed to find a way to to plug in. And at that time, the Fed had started to talk about unwinding its balance sheet. And there were so many things that that just didn't make sense. And I was looking for answers of what happens when the Fed reverses what it did in 2008, 9, 11, 12, 13, 14. Um, And so that path, in order to understand what I think happens when it unwinds, was what did they actually do? How did QE actually work? What was their actual thought process you know, in that moment in 2008 and 2009 leading up to it? Because um, 
you can't know what I think happens next without understanding the actual transmission mechanism of what their goals were and what their psychology is. And so I set out on a path and I, there was a guy who I was reading articles um, that were macro-related articles. I believe the guy's name was Jeffrey Snyder. Mm-hmm. And he was the one who actually, su- you know, didn't suggest to me personally, but um, was suggesting that I go back and read the transcripts. So five years after the fact, um, the Fed releases minutes two, two weeks after the fact, of, after meetings, but then they release the full transcripts of those meetings five years later. So when I was going through this process of doing this research and I guess it would have been 2017, the last year that was available was 2011. Um, so that's six years, but like basically the fifth year is released in the sixth year. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the one of the interesting things about that period, and again, I was in the I was in financial services at the time, but didn't have an appreciation for it. Um, 2011 started to look a lot like 2008, mm-hmm. um, and it was it was after QE1. It, it, it was really after eight cuts in the interest rates from four percent or four and a half percent to zero, after the liquidity crisis, after QE1, after QE2. Well, before you even get into like 2011 and 2008, I think what's imperative about Ender's Game, the paper that you wrote on this stuff, is going all the way back to 2005 and saying what Bernanke said. I believe there was a hiccup in the housing market or the S&P in February. Uh, Yeah, I think it was 2007. 2007. There were some quotes from 2005. There there was, and really the way that I came to, to form a view on it was that, you know, whether it was 2004, 2005, there were a lot of people that were, um, really attributing the the low period of volatility that had been experienced from the, the mid-1980s or early 1980s until 2005 um, or 2006 that, that was basically um, the Fed patting themselves on the back. Like the, the, the active monetary policy has contributed to both low um, price volatility as well as low output volatility. And that when you go back and look at some of the things that Bernanke was saying relative to the impact of monetary policy leading up to the financial crisis, and then once the... I, I do remember this from the time. I was working at Deutsche Bank at the time um, down on in the financial district. You know, the, the cracks in the facade started to appear in 2007, um, even more so in early 2008. But there are these quotes, if you go back and look at it, that... Um, the Fed was, I don't want to say blindsided, but they they did not have a, gr- a good read on what was going on. They were making comments. I think blindsided is a good uh, Yeah, I think that would be fair. Safe safe cautions me to, to not you know treat those people as idiots because they're certainly not idiots. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to their ability to forecast, um, it's extremely limited. And so when you go back and look in the hor- historical context of just the things that they were saying leading up to the financial crisis, and then you come away with the perspective that these were also the people that were... Um, deciding how to allocate trillions of dollars and then also how they actually think about those decisions um, because they do they do take it seriously but they but 750 billion to a trillion is a rounding error for them and so um, I think some of the comments leading up to to the actual crisis were along the lines of we you know the Fed does not expect a recession Um, they the he made Bernanke made some comment about how the GSEs were adequately capitalized um, and that you know they, 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 I think he made a comment around the lines of um, the, the financial markets were deep and liquid. Mm-hmm. And so you take the aggregate of those, and that's similar to what I was doing when I was going back and reading the transcripts. You know the ending to the story, and you see how the people in charge, um, what they actually thought, and then how they made decisions and how their actions were actually consistent with their prior views and you know, kind of starting to question the whole idea of 
you know, why do you have 12 people sitting around the table deciding how deciding this. trillions of dollars are allocated? And so I have uh, the tweet thread that I wrote on your paper up. And in 2004, Bernanke and crew expressed their beliefs that monetary policies they had been pursuing reduced volatility of inflation and output. In reality, they were just suppressing the volatility that was unleashed in 2008. Uh, but you really set the, the tone with the paper uh like in particular, the two decades leading up to 2008 saw debt in the U.S. nearly quintuple from 11.2 trillion to 52.5 trillion, um, with with mortgage and financial debt leading the charge. So you sort of have this two decades of debt buildup, the Fed thinking that the Fed enabling this debt buildup and thinking it's basically reducing volatility, and then being unleashed in 2008 with obviously you know the Great Recession. And I, I guess we should dive into the mechanisms of the Fed, how they sort of manipulate these markets and how they sort of skew the price mechanism of the world and, and, and sort of hide this volatility for a good amount of time, but it eventually rears its head. The, the hens come to roost. Yeah, so, and part of my thinking about this has been shaped around not only reading the, the Fed transcripts, but also reading a lot of, of Hayek, Frederick Hayek, um, again, which somehow I went through economics and never read. But as I suggest right. that everybody... Yeah, I got a degree in economics. Yeah. I never once learned about Hayek. Yeah, maybe before people even get to the Bitcoin standard, if they would just read The Road to Serfdom. Um, the Road to Serfdom and then uh, a couple essays that he also wrote, The Pretense of Knowledge and the Use of Knowledge in Society. And, and it helps kind of understand why price manipulation distorts the actual underlying economic activity. And when you start thinking about that relative to what the Fed is doing, that... Um, it's more pervasive than even setting price controls. It's it's manipulate by manipulating the money supply. You're manipulating every price in the market because the the dollar is the unit of count. So the only way, and that's another kind of one of the one of the the takeaways from from the work that I did was there's a lot of fancy words that the Fed talks about in terms of their operations. There's IOER, interest on overnight excess reserves. There's you know they refer to quantitative easing as large scale asset purchases. Operation twist. Operation twist. A lot of things that they do to to quote you know maintain um, low volatility or, or price stability, but but realistically all it is is. Um, inflating the money supply or manipulating the money supply and an interest rate targeting and really the only way to target an interest rate is to manipulate the the supply of it and they do that not just by buying and selling but also um, buying and selling at different term structures and so when I was going back through and, and looking at what the the Fed had done from the the course of 2009 to, to today one of the things that I really tried to do for myself to understand it was just see what the playing field was just like form for myself how to how to really view the right way to think about um of, of w what the fed did and the way that i started to think about it was what was the size of the credit system from 2000 you know what was it in 2007 versus what it, what is it in 2009 and that's when you start to, th to think about and these are just fed numbers but in 2007 the U.S. credit system, so just fixed liability, fixed maturity debt. Like, don't think about derivatives and CDOs and CDS. Um, just fixed liability debt with um, fixed maturity schedules. It was $53 trillion at the time. And at that time, the banks in total had $350 billion of cash. <laughs> so... The each dollar had essentially been lent Levered out. Up. Yeah, 150 to 1. Yeah. Each dollar had been pledged 150 to 1. And there was no way that every dollar could be paid back. And so I kind of, when I was going through my research, it was this realization, I think it's not a, um, 
it's not a unique realization, but that subprime was just the match that lit the fire, and what the fire was was the banking system itself and how levered it was and how insolvent it was. And that um, what the Fed really did you know, through QE1 was they were addressing the liquidity issue. And through QE2 and QE3, they really weren't. Um, and there was a famous Ben Bernanke 60 Minutes interview in December. I think it was December 10th. Our hero, Ben. December 5th, 2010, where he was talking about how what the Fed was doing was not printing money. And I, I started to view it from this perspective of everyone either thought he was lying or being highly disingenuous. But when you read the actual transcripts, the Fed thought what they were doing through QE2 was different than QE1, and they were interest rate targeting through QE2 and QE3. They weren't adding liquidity. They didn't necessarily think liquidity was the issue that they were solving for. And it's, it's a really interesting nuance, but it's one where it's, it, it signals to you that... How does injecting liquidity, like, how do you... How did they square that? Like, they don't think they're solving a liquidity problem by injecting liquidity. Like so they were injecting liquidity by, but they were, they, they viewed themselves as converting one form of money, um, central bank reserves or, or dollars, bank reserves, for something that was near money, which would be treasuries. Mm-hmm. Um, now, when they started to go into the MBS world, that made people within the Fed uncomfortable, but they continued to do it. So, you know, the Fed would view treasuries as near money and probably MBS is, you know, further away or less defensible, but something that was similar to money. Because if you think about it, when somebody, when the operation, when they were buying treasuries, so somebody has a treasury and they're making a dollar return on that. And suddenly if they only have the dollar, that that's less attractive to them because they don't no longer have the yield. So it doesn't instantaneously, it's not like helicopter dropping money all over Mm -hmm. the place. It's, it's essentially what they were doing was delevering the system. They were increasing the denominator. They, if, if, if at the beginning of the financial crisis there was $53 trillion in debt in the U.S. system and there were only $350 billion in the, in the system by, say, from start to finish, if they increased the, the, the amount of dollars by $3.6 trillion, just by that function alone they delevered the mm-hmm. economy. Um, and then that inflation would be seen over time. And so, um, But realistically, what they were doing was, they, again, through QE1, they saw a liquidity problem. And they, the, the bank bailouts, which you know, weren't expressly QE1 but were related to it, were about solving the liquidity problem, s- stopping the downward negative pro-cyclical um, credit contraction that was causing virtually any bank um, in the system like probably would have failed if, it had just, if, if, if the course had just run out. And that was not a scenario that would have been okay by the Fed. Um, and so what they... What they did through those emergency measures in QE1 was solving liquidity problems. What they did through QE2 was we need to, again, because in a monetarist world, the only way, not the only way, but their 90... effective way. Well, in their view, the, the effective way to achieve full employment and to achieve their mandate is through this you know, famous word or famous pair of words that's aggregate demand. That we, we have to spur aggregate stoke demand, it. and the only way to stoke aggregate demand is to um, ease, you know, ease the monetary conditions, lower interest rates, so that people have a, uh, an incentive to borrow. And that's what they did through QE2 and QE3. They just needed a bigger boat, and they needed to lower longer-term interest rates to incentivize the type of demand that they wanted. So that's why when I say that QE2 and QE3 were really, they were interest rate targeting. And so what, what Bernanke, you know, when he, when he 
you know, went on 60 Minutes in 2010 and said we're not printing money. They technically weren't. They were creating creating reserves. The Treasury is the the Treasury is who prints money, um, but the Fed is who creates dollars. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there was a there were a, there's a few steps in between there. But again, their motivation through QE2 and QE3 were how do we get interest rates low enough so that somebody then goes and builds a real estate project, um, and they focus a lot on on, on credit spreads. And so um, when you see that and you and you see the progress of you know, if QE1 was effective, why do they need QE2? If QE2 is effective, why do they need QE3? And so it's just, you know, looking at the historical lens leads you to things and understanding the, the playing field leads you to the conclusion. That's why I also got into Bitcoin, which was if you understand that there's 70 trillion of debt and only $2 trillion today, again, the system is not fixed. It's just, you know, one more round of QE away. And, and that's why Bitcoin exists. And I think that's why we're all... You know, some people may come for the sound money and, you know, stay for the technology, but more people probably come for the tech and stay for the sound money. No, I would agree. And so I guess that begs the question is how much longer can the Fed do this? And one thing that I talk a lot about is uh, just looking at the Fed funds rate and sort of moving lower towards the x-axis on this fractal um, where it's at a point where it it doesn't seem likely that it'll go over 3% anytime soon and may actually in a worst case scenario have to go into a negative interest rate policy um so as and it seemed and just last week chairman powell came out and said he doesn't expect the fed to hike rates at all this year where previous meeting he said they probably expected two hikes at least this year so it seems like they're backpedaling a little bit and where do you think they are right now in april 2019 yeah i mean i think the first thing to recognize is that they shifted course real quickly right and in a lot of people there's this idea in the hedge fund world of good news is bad news um, or bad news is good news really where um, the fed so long as the fed is accommodative you, you want to be in risk assets and i i you know have a lot of people that i've been talking to about what my views of the fed are I've, one of the things that i've been you know my view is, is that qe is coming um, and it's coming a lot sooner than than people expect uh, some people may view that as you know go oh, go buy equities and have exposure to the stock market and i for those people I just remind them that, again, if you go back to 2008, um, the, f- the, the chinks in the armor were there. The Fed shifted course, and they reduced interest rates seven times from you know, 4 or 4.5% to zero, and then there was a liquidity crisis, and then they did QE. And so there's a lot of risk between here and there. Um, so I think that you know, what the Fed signaled in March was that they're going to they're gonna start uh, tapering the unwind. So if they're they're reducing fifty billion dollars, <laughs> tapering the unwind. What an Orwellian use of language there. Yeah, uh, they are tapering the unwind. Tapering the only taper. only about uh, eighteen months after they started the unwind. So they had easy money for nine years, and they told us the problems were solved. But then the second they get Fed funds to two and a half percent, and they in they literally invert the yield curve, which is terrible sign not a good sign not a good sign let's just be honest you don't want the yield curve to look like you might (laughs) 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 fed funds is higher than the the five year i think it's or i think the one year is equal to the 10 year it's uh yeah so so if somebody tells you that that's a bullish sign they're 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 looking at the wrong market um but i think i think the most important thing is you know and again this part this partly goes back to you know the part of the way that i read the fed and i really suggest that people you know, as an exercise, do it. Not everybody has time to read 290 pages. Each meeting is about 290 pages, but thank you for your service. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how you it did was, it. Uh, it y- you get good at it. And we found out uh, yesterday or two days ago that you had to put up with some pretty hubristic talk as well. 
Yeah, um, there you were, was some. You were uh, looking at more recent minutes, correct? I was looking at the 2012 minutes, just getting prepared for this. I knew I needed to have a, a few nuggets for you for for that. But but one of the things that you 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 glean in all the Fed all the Fed transcripts they're, they're set up the same way. So they they do an economic roundtable. There's some summaries, and then they do a monetary policy roundtable. And so you you can you can really focus your time and energy around key decisions. Like we know when QE three and four were an, was announced, and so you can go to that meeting and. Um, and read and actually understand the psychology. But one of the interesting things was that in 2011, the Fed, virtually to a person, thought that they were going to be unwinding. So this was June of 2011. They thought they were going to be unwinding QE2 in early 2012. So that so <laughs> I, I don't think so. If you actually go back and look at like what QE2 will never be unwound. So just to be clear, like they started unwinding the balance sheet in 2000, October 2017, but they will never get to the level that it was at just after QB2 based on what the Fed has currently said. Um, but so that shows you that they were wrong. Um, but then also at that time, they, they went through a roundtable and they asked, well, okay, how will we start to, to reverse what we've done today or through QE1 and QE2 when it's time to do that? What will be the sequence? And again, almost to a person, I think 15 out of 16 said that they would first start to reduce the balance sheet and then they would start to raise short-term interest rates. Again, we don't know what changed in their thinking necessarily, but in 2015, they decided that they were going to start to raise short-term interest rates and they didn't start to unwind the balance sheet until 2017. So part of it's what you learn by actually reading it, but part of it's just by reading, you're reading a book, but knowing the ending. Right. And you start to appreciate that these people are continually wrong not only continually like serially wrong serially criminally wrong. criminally serially wrong like for being in the position that they are they're supposed to be experts and that's what yeah and then they go forward so if you fast forward to the next year in 2012 like in 2011 they were li- i mean there were people who were um you know throwing their within the fit throwing their hands up about monetizing the debt and how they shouldn't monetize the debt and very clearly what you know powell's just come out and announced that Starting in May, they're going to start to taper the unwind, and then in September, they're going to be done. They monetize the debt. You know, like that should be the question that Zach's of Chairman Powell. Did you monetize the Yellen debt? Yellen came out and suggested we go full BOJ, investing in equities and stuff. Yeah, a there's weeks a, ago. A, a, an investor that I like to pay attention to who's also invested in the crypto space, Mark Yusko. Um, he often uses the tagline Becoming Japan. And so I think he's a great advocate for the space, but he also thinks, I think he sees a lot of the same problems that I see with and think about the monetary system the same way or the legacy monetary system and it is one of the reasons that brought us to, to bitcoin um but but going back to your point about the the 2012 pieces was you had these people who you know there were some certain dissenting voices within the fed about how the fed shouldn't be in the business of credit allocation specifically speaking to you know why is the fed buying mortgage-backed securities and it's really phenomenal to to know that through qe1 and qe2 and you know, QE1 and QE3, the Fed bought, I think, um, 17% of all mortgages through mm-hmm. MBS. And that and there was such, a, there was such a, a, a backlash, at least within certain members of the Fed, that they thought that they should never do that. And then in 2012, they went ahead and authorized buying $40 billion a month for virtually two years. And there was, a, there was an exchange within that Fed meeting, and I, I posted on Twitter the other day, where you, and the guy who actually asked the question was like, "What do you want the head, the, the USA Today headline to be?" He was actually the guy that was most opposed to the Fed buying MBS, and he was the only person from that meeting that actually dissented. Um, you would think that in, if you had that much of a disagreement, the 
dissent should be resignation. Um, but he basically asked, what do you what do you think the what do you want the um, USA Today headline to be? And Bernanke's response, and again, he was joking, but still, you know, when these people are talking, no self-awareness, no self-awareness, <laughs> like no self-awareness that people are going to be reading this five years later. It was uh, Bernanke, the hero was the first headline that he suggested and then the second one was well that was actually a headline on like the Atlantic I didn't even know that I just the thought Atlantic, it was ridiculous. I believe it wasn't USA Today but on the Atlantic I believe they posted a, a cover page of Bernanke or like hero in like green money uh, colored letters but it's yeah but so so it was Bernanke the hero and then you know Bernanke supports the labor market and then somebody asked by buying MBS question mark and then I think Bernanke responded, housing. People understand housing. Oh, my god! And then the guy who asked the question initially was like, okay. And that was the exchange, you know, where... Hopefully these, he was shaking his head. These people, and this was something that SAFE helped me understand of just, you know, why central bank manipulation doesn't make sense at a, at a first principles level is that 12 people can't sit around a table and reasonably decide how a trillion dollars gets allocated. Can't micromanage. Um, but the people who are doing that... They, they're doing it both with the background of being serially wrong and deploying the same tools when, the, when doing the same thing hadn't worked before. And, and doing it while also recognizing, again, it's not as if there isn't dissent within the Fed. The, fe the dissent within the Fed is much, generally much greater than the minutes suggest. Um, but rather than go to the mat, um, because again, the Fed wouldn't work if there were actually Austrians involved. Could you imagine that? If like no. one out of twelve every time was just like no, and then like, it's all not. confidence game. You can't have that dissent like per, uh, proliferate too much, or you, you lose confidence in the system at some point. Um, but I, 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 I wanted to stick on like the MBS buying. So that's what led to Operation Twist, right? So Operation Twist was uh, the program in which they unloaded their toxic assets, which included a lot of MBSs. Correct, or am I wrong? No, so Operation Twist was wasn't that twisting out of toxic assets into cleaner ones? No, it was the or the principal thing that Operation Twist is is referring to is they changed the duration profile of the the assets that they did hold, um, which basically signaled went from shorter to longer term. Yeah, that signaled yeah. that the the level of support for the easy monetary conditions would be um, longer um, than initially expected. Okay. And no. so, and that basically, on me there. yeah, that, that basically happened. So, and the other interesting thing was during 2011, and this is why I caution people today that because of the makeup or because of the construction of the financial system, where the only way that a system can get so levered is that every time the system tries to self-correct or tr tries to restructure as a whole, uh, overall deleveraging, the only way that it can c continue to exist and, and that can metastasize is if the fed manipulates the price of credit. And it does so through quantitative easing or large-scale asset purchases. And so, but the thing that I remind people of is in 2011, there was this progression over six months, which was everybody thought that the economy was getting better and that the risks were skewed to the upside, that there, there weren't a lot of downside risks in, say, January of 11. Then they, they remained confident in March, but then it got, you know, increasingly, you know, there were some signals on the wall that made them, you know, not as confident. Then in April, May, people started to, you know, see that, economic fundamentals were, I don't want to say deteriorating, but, but were under, um, were not hitting expectations. 2011, they ended QE2. And then in August, there was, a, basically they started to see signs of 2008. I remember and that's this, another yeah. origin, you know, an interesting thing that you see from the actual transcripts 
is, and I don't think many people have the appreciation for, is just um, how confused the Fed was that after they increased the excess reserves from ten $10 billion to $1.7 trillion, why there would be... Um, why there why there could ever be a liquidity crisis like how could there be a liquidity crisis and I think the answer to that is that they they view liquidity through short-term needs and that's not really how anybody finances their businesses or their lives and 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 because of the nature of the of, of how levered the system is that liquidity can disappear very quickly and isn't that that's a scary thought too because this is something I brought up at Baruch College last week I went in to talk about Bitcoin to a college class with Matt Adele. Um, and we, we got into monetary policy and I brought up the Fed monetary base. And it's incredible if you look at that chart. Like, so from 1913 to 2008, the Fed's balance sheet expands from zero to $800 billion. And then from 08 to 2014, it goes from $800 billion to $4.2 trillion or $4.4 trillion, whatever it is. It's a rounding error at that point. Um, it's crazy that that much liquidity was pumped into the system yet they were still having liquidity issues in 2011 and yeah and and it's really because of and again this is what i urge people the the way that i think about it and the way that i urge people to kind of take a step back and look at the field as a whole it's the size of the credit system relative to the actual number of dollars that exists not the not the amount of deposits but the the um, the bank reserves if you look at the left side of the bank's balance sheets if you look at the left side of the bank's balance sheets in aggregate they've got two trillion dollars of reserves those two trillion of reserves are stacked up against seventy billion plus today of both bank li- bank debt liabilities and shadow bank liabilities, and so um, liquidity is only ever present so long as the system as a whole doesn't need it. As long as the, so long as or when the system as a whole actually needs it, it evaporates very quickly, and that's what happened in two thousand eight, and that's what happened in two thousand started to happen in two thousand eleven. So. Um Extrapolate on that because that's another part of Ender's game that you really drove home was you think there's liquidity, but when it comes time to need it, uh, you realize that it's not really there. And and how do they envision this liquidity flows and how does it actually flow when 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 it's actually needed? Well, I think about think about a mortgage rate. Um, Certain mortgage rates borrow for 60 days and then go buy additional mortgages to take leverage. Um, I don't know why anybody finances their, their business. They're basically buying long-term assets and they have short-term liabilities. And that's essentially what got us into, into 2008. And so again, so long as, as people in a real way don't need liquidity, then people can borrow at reasonable rates for, for 60 days or 30 days or 90 days. But once those cracks start to emerge and everybody starts all at once to realize that you know the game of musical chairs is far more than one chair short then there start to be defaults and, and everybody at the same start time stops trusting those bar- partners that are financing their businesses on shor- a short term basis because generally any business that doing that is doing that is for some sort of financial engineering and that when that unwinds it has a significant negative feedback loop, and so um, there's a, a waterfall or cascading effect that sets off, you know, one default actually causing the next default. And so I think the way that they think about it is, and, and certain people in the Fed, Richard Fisher talked about this in uh, both 2011 and 2012, where he talks about how, um, and it's also why QE is so you know, phenomenal and preposterous, is that there's people within the Fed that, that specifically raise questions like. I don't think we understand how overall 
um, system deleveraging impacts our models, but we're still willing to go, you know, our models create $1.7 trillion without first understanding those questions. There's also other, you know, one of the, the lead fed economists, not one, not one of the governors he raised where, you know, he basically was raising the, these questions about how, um, and I think he said something along the lines of, um, our, our ability to understand the, the impact of monetary policy on the real economy is, is severely limited, as it is with the entire profession. And when he refers to the profession as central bankers as a whole or, you know, macro monetarists as a whole. And that, you know, it was great that people were doing the work to try to understand it, but that their work at the time, this would be 2011, 2012, um, he didn't know, you know, it, it may not have been its inf in its infancy, but it wasn't far beyond toddlerhood. So basically these people within the Fed recognizing that they didn't actually understand what the effects or unintended consequences of QE would be, but they still, you know, had the ill temperament to go out and spend a trillion dollars. Right. Or $3.6 trillion. And that goes into like the philosophy philosophy behind the study of economics like can you can you even make economic models are they viable and is economics more of a look back and describe what happened or uh, try to predict what you can do via policy and stuff like that to the future and yeah i mean i think in my perspective the answer is no like yeah. you can create models to to be predictive but you can't manage an economy from the top down and yeah, because because that's how capitalism works right? information like new information surprises is what makes capitalism go is new innovations new information that has never been revealed to the market before in the form of maybe a technological innovation or a discovery of a new precious metal whatever it may be that's that's hasn't happened recently it's just a hypothetical uh you cannot make models around that right and, and, and thinking about how this this innovation affects a whole global economy yeah, I think, and so what I would strongly recommend people do is go read uh, F.A. Hayek. Um, again, the combination, if you don't have a lot of time, and you probably have to read it multiple times, but reading The Pretense of Knowledge, which was his, I think, 1974 Nobel Prize winning, like he basically won the Nobel Prize that year, and that was his, his speech, and also The Use of Knowledge in Society. It's this idea, and I won't pretend to be able to express it as eloquently in recognizing that his um, his writings are actually also very dense, but it's the idea that no one possesses perfect knowledge and that the idea of capitalism is disposing of the need to rely on any single or any central point of knowledge and that we, the through um, a lack of central planning, we can actually achieve through you know the price mechanism what we couldn't uh, imagine achieving with central planning. And so one of the, in the use, I think it's the use of knowledge in society and the, the use of knowledge in society and the pretense of knowledge are both probably 10 to 15 page essays. So digestible, but also dense. And, but the idea that he, he uses to explain it and Milton Friedman, who's also a monetarist who I dislike, but um, he also talks about the idea, like there's a YouTube video of, you know, all the inputs that go to creating a pencil and, and, and Hayek talks about a similar um or an explanation about how the price mechanism actually transmits knowledge throughout the world. And I don't know if this is the express example that he uses, but the way to think about it is um, there could be people in Texas or New York who are building homes and they rely on copper to put in those homes or to wire homes. And there could be an earthquake in Chile. And um, the supply chains of, of copper, because Chile is a big exporter of copper, could suddenly be disrupted. And the guy who's building homes in Texas or New York or North Carolina doesn't have to know 
that there is a earthquake in in Chile that just disrupted his supply chain that made the cost of copper go up. He just knows that the price of copper goes up, and so now he has to allocate resources differently. He either needs to charge his customers more, figure out you know some way to substitute that product, build homes that have less copper in it. But really, the the transmission mechanism of knowledge is the price mechanism, um, and that it can allow information to be disseminated over events that you know hundreds of millions of people in the world may not ever know about technically of what caused the change they just need to know that the change occurred and 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 that actually is the price mechanism that can, that actually transmits the knowledge and that also what what was help what helped me think about the fed and and re the realization that the only way whether it's 1980 2008 QE1 QE2 QE3 the only tool they really have is increasing the money supply which manipulates the pricing mechanism the pricing mechanism and when you manipulate the pricing mechanism you distort the underlying economic activity and what that allows to happen is for all of that volatility that would otherwise have been resolved through smaller ups and downs to build up underneath the surface and that's a lot of what uh, Nassim Taleb talks about that if you don't have um, fluctuations or volatility then you're ultimately just kicking that can down the road and you're going to get a you know a, a probably more destructive or more impairing um, acute problem in the future yeah no this is what another prolific Austrian economist touches on as well, Jörg Guido Holzman in The Ethics of Money Production, page 71, page 70 and 71, I believe. I'll have to go back and read that. It's uh, it's incredible. He describes uh, the mispricing of credit in particular and and, and the malinvestment that, that sort of ensues when you have easy monetary policy and easy access to credit uh, via the, Fed, the Fed's uh, liquidity goals and stuff like that. And so you have a misallocation of resources and this is tied back to Bitcoin and sort of try to bring a sound money uh, system into into the conversation here. Like, it just, the sound money system built on Bitcoin could potentially uh, reduce the, the misallocation of funds in particular. Yeah, I think, and I think the way to, the way that I think about that is if you, if it, not everybody is an economics major, but if you just think about a simple supply and demand curve, that when the Fed pursues QE1, QE2, or QE3, they basically shift out the supply curve for dollars. Um, and what that does is it creates an imbalance, an extended imbalance between people's willingness to borrow and people's willingness to lend. Um, if if the rate is lower and I have dollars to lend, I should I have a, a less a lower incentive to lend. But at the same time that I have a lower incentive to lend, the the person that's borrowing is now being able to access capital at a, on a cheaper basis, and they have a, an incremental incentive to borrow. And so the Fed, their actual goal through QE2 and QE3 was I need to lower long-term interest rates so that I can incentivize borrowers to demand loans and that that is my way out of this. Like, think about how crazy that is. That is, right? we, had a, we had a credit system that was incredibly unstable and the way out of it is to induce more credit. And time preference, paycheck to paycheck spending. Yeah, yeah, totally crazy. And what you see, like if you actually look and see where that credit was created, so pre-crisis, 53 trillion, today, 70 trillion give or take a trillion um, if we're throwing trillions around like the Fed does. Um, <laughs> which you shouldn't. Which you shouldn't ever do. <laughs> trillions shouldn't be a word in policymakers or um, or in the Fed's terminology, but once we get to a 21 million unit of account in total, it'll we'll, be impossible. We'll, we'll take out the whole trillion dollar problem. <laughs> but uh, It's a big problem. It's a big uh, problem. 
But uh, well, I totally lost my train of thought there. Um, we're talking about trillions pricing mechanism. Guido Holzman, misallocation, sound money standard on Bitcoin will help. So you're saying the Fed's policy is sort of the way out of this credit crisis. Uh, was to, to induce, induce more people. credit. So yes. yeah, 53 trillion pre-crisis, 70 trillion today. And that if you think of, if you thought about any individual industry or company, um, restructuring is a positive thing. I worked in restructuring for a long time. If you were a telecom company, a legacy telecom company, and you had too much debt, that yeah, that debt needs to be restructured. New new economies or new industries emerge, and if you think about it on a micro level, like it makes sense that certain companies go out of business and they need to be restructured and bad bad debts need to be written off. Same thing with zombie economies and zombie industries. But the Fed's monetary policy essentially allows those industries to continue on longer than they otherwise would. And so when people look at individual companies or individual industries and believe that that restructuring and writing off of bad debts is a good thing, um, it all makes sense. But then when you apply that to the market as a whole, it suddenly doesn't. And I think that that's really what, what has happened. It's been this um, unfettered credit expansion be, you know, fostered by a shift in Fed doctrine, but as well as a departure from some, from sound money, that's allowed. And it's really interesting if you look at the size of the credit system relative to GDP in the United States going back to the 1940s. It was virtually constant at about 150 mm-hmm. percent from the 1940s to the mid 1980s. Obviously, in 19, in, you know, the early 1970s, we actually departed from the the true gold standard. Um, you know, the, Gold convertibility officially ended in 1971, but then the, sh- the Fed doctrine of how they would deal with with um, the booms and busts and trying to to even out those business cycles was to m- manipulate the supply of money. That increasingly became a tool, and when you when you see what's happened since the, the late 1970s and early 1980s was that that relative proportion from you know basically debt to gdp went from 150 percent which was constant for 40 years to magically over the next 30 years to 350 percent or 400 percent and so what that essentially means is the credit system out you know the growth in the credit system far outpaced the growth in the underlying economy and that simply wouldn't have been possible if every time the credit system as a whole tried to restructure that the fed didn't step in and not allow it and and their approach has been you take an unstable or unsustainable credit system and and the best way to deal with it is to reflate assets so that that amount of debt can be sustained rather than allow the debt to be restructured to uh, an amount that that makes sense relative to the economic activity and that's uh, i think essentially what gets to, to where we're at today or where we're at in 2008 where you had this undercurrent building up for a very long period of time because of the that type of behavior and once you understand this it's hard It's hard to unsee it. It's hard to unsee it, and then it's hard not to see Safe's view of the world where monetary policy does make everything worse off. So, like, a lot of people want to talk about the environmental situation that we're in and stuff like that, and they want to throw money at the problem. But I would argue, like, the system has led us to this problem in in ways where it allows misallocation of funds and incentivizes people to make shitty plastic things that are just sold frivolously and shitty housing and, and... we, we don't have good architecture anymore because nobody has the time preference to think about building uh, good, worthwhile things that'll last for, for decades or centuries even. Nobody's thinking about the centuries uh, time scale right now. Yeah. I'm I, trying I, to bring... I totally, I totally agree. So, so, one, I think that Safe's view, and this was something that before I think I even actually got into Bitcoin, or I, I mean, I was interested, but I hadn't been red-pilled yet. He made a comment to me that was that central bankers create financial crises. And I think that 
if you start to look at the world in this lens, it makes 100% of sense that and at, at a root level or at a first principle level, that baseline is the Fed manipulates the pricing mechanism rather than allowing the economy to restructure. It, it puts that off and then the ultimate restructuring or the you know ultimate come to Jesus moment is actually way worse because they suppress volatility over the long term. And so that's the thing that I tell people I get. I mean, um, I give everybody that I can possibly meet a copy of his book. And but I also recognize that if you are especially trained in economics and you know by a Western university, that you probably read Safe's book and think he, it's asinine. It's asinine. Like <laughs> you have a visceral reaction. Right. You you literally if you if you read his book based on your prior education. You think it's crazy and it's not reasonable and he's probably lying about something. But if you just apply your actual real world experience and, you know, kind of having lived through the financial crisis again, being at Deutsche Bank from 2006 to 2009, going and working in restructuring, working for a hedge fund. If you just evaluate the type of concepts that he talks about relative to your real world experiences, um, I think you come out on the same side. And that's why I think Bitcoin is going to be so successful because um, we're going to win the war of ideas. Right. That we just are. It's like it's very simple that if you if you actually go and talk to somebody and ask them, you know, hey, you did some work for me today. Do you want to be paid in the form of currency that is fixed in supply? Um, don't have to explain to you why it's fixed in supply, but just that start there as a baseline. Or do you want to be paid in the form of currency that your government can and does and regularly tells you that they manipulate and that they target that the average person will accept version a right it's just a logical choice well it's a and, logical and, and, and it's far more complicated than it's that it's a logical choice and it's an optionality that doesn't, hasn't existed for most people up to this point yeah you did not have an opt-out in 2009 yes and, and and this is another big theme recently on this podcast the last three months is especially after Masir came on and described you're giving up your very scarce time for a very inflatable resource you should think about giving up your scarce time for a scarce money as well um, and especially, and this is a topic that we talked about last episode with Johnny Dilley, Tom Garambone, and Matt O'Dell, is you have the average American, 60% of Americans, can't afford uh, a $400 emergency expense because they don't have a savings vehicle, essentially, at the end of the day. Like, you don't have, you cannot save purchasing power, like, not just money, purchasing power throughout time in our current economy. Your plumber, your teacher, your crossing guard, if they're lucky enough to have enough money to save, they're usually forced to chase yield in whether it be a, a mutual fund or, or some other investment vehicle. And then they often get the short end of the stick when when hens come home to roost and, and the system corrects. Yeah, so our friend Napoleon, who uh, I think is he's a lurker on Twitter, he's a very early, you know, a good Bitcoiner, he's Will's brother. He's got this tweet from 2014 that says... Uh, um, only invest in the USD what you can afford to lose. <laughs> <laughs> right? Right? And so when people think about, um, and it's kind of, uh, you know, Mark Yusko also talks about the, the boiling frog. And when you think about inflation on a, on a single year or, you know, a one or two year period, a very, you know, high time preference, short period, and you realize that the Fed's targeting 2%, that they're telling you they're intending to cause your money to lose 2% of its value, people kind of get, you know, in the mainstream, get lulled to sleep by that. Of, well, you know, 2% a year, you know, my wages are it's going not up. Not that much. Not that much, no big deal. 
But think about that over 10 years or over 20 years, a decade or two decades, where you're having to replicate 20% or 40% of your wealth just to stay in place, essentially, right? Like you're, it's, it's akin to running on a treadmill as fast as you can to, to replace 20% over a decade or 40% of your wealth over two decades. If, if the Fed's 2%, which nobody believes, SAFE talks a lot about how the actual inflation rate is far higher because yeah, the, the CPI is the most manipulated metric that the Fed has out there. Yeah, and I'm not going to go through his analogy of ribeyes, but it's a good one. No, it's a good one. And that's Rudy Van Havenstein. Shout out Rudy Van Havenstein on Twitter, one of my favorite FinTwit followers. He's a parody account of uh, the chairman of the Reichsbank when it went uh, when it went bust in the early 1900s. But he always, I brought up a couple years ago, uh, like, they're going to tell you, like, because when I was in the futures market, we traded lean hogs and cattle and stuff like that. And if you pull up a, a chart of lean hogs and cattle, which make up some of the best meat that this country has to offer, they're almost straight up and to the right. And so that there's obviously been price inflation in those markets, but the CPI would tell you otherwise. And he came and is like, yeah, well, they replaced those meats with rough rice. Like, rough rice has not has not changed uh, price much over the last couple of years, but they're going to tell you that, uh, that it's reflective of the overall sort of pricing uh, uh, condition of the market. Right, because if I, uh, yeah, and I'm not going to go into the details because SAFE or Rudy can explain it far better than I can, but, but the idea being that because of the way that the Fed tracks it, People substitute, you know, as those things become more expensive, they leave the basket and yes. then they substitute for cheaper things. So they're actually you substitute um, your good lean and it, cattle and it's for not, rough it's rice. It's not just food; it's just real goods and services, and and you deteriorate your quality wherever it may be in the quality that a home that is built. Um, it's not subject to just food, right? No, and then and then you look at like the most essential needs in this country, which would be healthcare, uh, education. I wouldn't argue that. Education, as current form, is as essential, but it's viewed as essential in this country. And uh, real estate are some of the most highly inflating markets over the last decade. And they're going to piss on your face and tell you it's raining and tell you the inflation is subdued at two percent. Like it doesn't make any fucking sense. Yeah, I don't. I I've been trying to find. There's a chart, and if you look at inflation of of goods or assets that are he- either heavily regulated or are actively subsidized or heavily subsidized or actively manipulated by the fed is basically any free market the good the price of goods go down technology tvs clothes yeah which is re- which is really one of the the principal underlying you know, ideas of capitalism is how to how to to create the same or more with fewer resources and be able to de- to deliver that um, to to a, a large market of people but if you look at healthcare or education or housing like just think about the fact that um, and I, this was part of pillars the pillars of our society, <laughs> right? Yeah, our <laughs> core pillars of our society, like the Fed, either you know through their um, you know student loan. Like if you look at student loans, like holy shit! Like what did you think was gonna happen? The government tells you make tells you make cl- debt free. Kids are gonna go go you know, take debt, the drugs, and then the universities are gonna be like, all right, you're offering the debt. We're gonna raise prices. Like you're not gonna stop offering these loans. So we're gonna raise prices to see how how much you'll pay. Yeah, and so if you look at the housing market, and this is one of the things, and uh, you know, I'm happy to figure out a way to just make the the white paper. I, well, it's not a white paper; it's not like an ICO white paper. It's just a research piece. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's a very good it's research 40 piece. Pa- Forty pages, but if you if you read it, one of the things I talk about, and, and you start to understand some of the imbalances in, in the manipulation of price, 
the housing market. The housing market is far through where we were in quote the housing bubble in 2007 right. on a nationwide basis. In this city is uh, we're we're looking at some of the buildings that are causing this. Yeah, we're seeing we're, we're sitting on a rooftop and seeing some <laughs> brand new high end construction in Brooklyn that probably can never be afforded in 10 years or afforded. Um, but when you look at that and you see, okay, we're through the 2007 price levels, but labor participation is lower. There's actually um, fewer number of households that actually own homes. So there's actually more households, but the, the homeowner percentage is lower. And when you look at the actual components of where the labor participation rate has actually lagged, it's, it's not just, um, it's actually older people are contributing to the workforce in an increasing way, but people who are 16 to 54 on a gross basis, if you just looked at a snapshot, again, the census does it every 10 years, so 2004 to 2014, there were actually fewer number of people that were 16 to 54 working in the United States or participating in the labor force in that 10-year gap. And at the same time, you have the labor force participation rate of people in the 55 to 65 age bracket going up, yeah. which is crazy. Yeah. And so when all of those things are true, the price level of homes are actually higher than they were in 2007, which everybody agreed was a bubble. And then you start to realize that, oh, the only way that that was possible was that the Fed went and bought $1.7 trillion of mortgages. Right, like they actually reduced the 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 rate of a mortgage from whatever you know whatever it was before that was probably manipulated, but they the housing market could not exist in in its form today if the Fed hadn't gone and bought in seven seventeen percent of all mortgages that exist. And now that it's we see insane. like as they're trying to get out of the business of monetizing both the federal debt and the mortgages, they're finding that they can't do that. Right. Um, because if they do that, everything is pro-cyclical. If housing prices start to drop again, then people's perception of their wealth drops and then they spend less. And again, aggregate demand is the way to get full employment. So so it's a it's really a catch 22. And the, the Fed is um, shown in the past. And this is one of the things you also get from reading the transcripts. And I don't suggest that everybody reads every transcript. But if you go and read the core meetings around, you know, when QE3 was announced, when the the um, European debt crisis happened in, in August of 2011, you, you realize that um, the Fed has this mentality, and, and Ben Bernanke admits it himself. He'll make comments like, and again, he's not the Fed chair anymore, but he was at the time where he'll, he'll recognize that monetary policy may not be the problem, and there may be fiscal and structural problems that monetary policy can't solve, but in his terms, we have to do, we have to be palliative. We have to do something. To do something. And like the need to do, so, or the thought that you need to do something exists. Like, it's prevalent throughout all the Fed's doings. Right. And in the Fed's world, that is, we literally have the power to decide that we're going to buy $40, trillion, or $40 billion worth of mortgages or MBS, not, not direct mortgages, but mortgage-backed securities, every month for an indefinite period of time. And then three months later, in December of 2012, they would add 45 billion a month of treasuries as well. So they were buying 85 billion of you know, base money a to month. a month, which is just crazy that right. 12 people that are unelected have that, that power. And that when you start to read Safe's book and understand monetary economics, you realize that you know, no one can efficiently allocate capital that way. This does not end well. Does not end well. So let's end on that. How does this end? Like, how do we, how do we, transition out of this like there's going to have to be some pain how much pain and is there a way to alleviate uh the overall pain potentially 
by partially transitioning to like a Bitcoin economy or something like that. Yeah, I mean, I think that the it, it's hard to predict, and I'm not someone that's an ultimate doomsdayer that we're going to go back into a 2008 like crisis. I think what I am confident in, and what we're already seeing today, is that the Fed's response is and will increasingly become QE and QE a lot quicker and a lot more accommodative a lot a lot sooner. And so I think that um, Bitcoin really exists because of QE. Um, whatever you want to call it, you know, today the Fed is unwinding the balance sheet. They're quickly going to reverse that. They're, they've already signaled that they're, they're going to be reversing it or at least stopping the, the shrinking of the balance sheet um, in September of this year. But the ECB hasn't stopped and the Bank of Japan hasn't stopped and Bitcoin is global and, and Bitcoin really is um, the antimatter to, to Fed's QE. Um, I think th the best case scenario is that we gradually shift or gradually onboard enough people to have a sustainable um, Bitcoin economy at the time when, you know, an actual developing world's currency just tits up. Yeah. <laughs> Couldn't say it better. <laughs> Wouldn't have said it, but, you know, that, you know, a, a G5 currency actually hyperinflates. It's one thing to see. You know, and again, it's incredibly devastating to see what's going on in um, places like Venezuela. But when you don't have an alternate currency system, and that's really what I think of as what Bitcoin is, it is that backup. Without without Bitcoin, um, money, um, and again, this isn't these these are views that I form by, you know, reading things from Hayek and people like Safe. It's really the backbone that allows people that that don't have. Um, any incentive to otherwise cooperate or coordinate to to specialize and to have a division of labor that allows them to go and create things that they wouldn't otherwise be able to do and it's really what creates civil you know basically a civilized society the ability to do that and so my hope is my my expectation is at least you know kind of in the next cycle we're not going to you know the dollar's not going to hyperinflate in the through the next round of QE but that people increasingly pay attention and that they realize that bitcoin exists because of operations like QE. How do we get people to stop watching The Bachelor and start thinking about what money is and the fact that it probably needs to be fixed? Like, So that's like the mission we're on here on Tales from the Crypt and Marty's been is to try to educate people that, hey, maybe you should think about what your money is and uh, how it affects your life and, and the life of your family and everybody that you share this world with. Um, and, that, and I'm just interested to hear your opinions of the best way to go about educating people or maybe like nudging people towards maybe thinking about this, you know, well, or is I, it something where they don't think about it till they're forced to? No, I think, I think that the people who have more access to knowledge are, you know, I don't want to say unfortunately, but the people who are in the, the less dire needs have more access to information. So they're going to, that, that knowledge is going to transfer them sooner than the places where it's needed most acutely today. Um, but I can certainly say that the answer isn't to drop airdrop, Zcash <laughs> to people like you don't no. want to you don't want to airdrop not money to people that that need money, um, but I do think that the best way and you know I spend an incredible amount of my own time explaining Bitcoin to people. Uh, I'm not a developer, but I I think I understand the the problems. You have a very good grasp of how the the protocol works. Yeah, and, and that, that is also another thing that once you read the Bitcoin standard, you read Mastering Bitcoin. I just got Jimmy Song's new book, um, Programming Bitcoin. So one of these days I'll you know, build up the courage to actually work work through, you know, and understand elliptic curve math better. Are we going to see a Parker Lewis uh, PR in Bitcoin Core <laughs> one day? <laughs> we better. <laughs>
if, if you're we, reading all these books, yeah. that's what I, yeah, I hope if, comes if out. If we of don't, it. I've I've taken a wrong turn, but I've got a. <laughs> uh, there's going to be some time. I need I need a decade at least. <laughs> there's going to be some important uh, pull requests that, that we need in a decade. So yeah, start uh, one day at a time, one page at a time. Um, but so I mean, realistically, I think that the best way to do it is to um, educate people on why private keys are so important. Um, ed- educate people on what Bitcoin is, like what money is. I think that's the best thing about Bitcoin. People are just going to have, like, again, when we were kids, when I was a kid, I never stopped and asked why the dollars that my dad gave me for doing a chore. My first job was bussing tables at a Mexican food restaurant in Austin. You never stopped and asked, like, why is this dollar bill money? And I think that's the best thing that, that Bitcoin is going to force people to do, partly because it's interesting. Um, and earlier on, it's not going to be necessarily forced, but people are going to be increasingly interested in just understanding what money is. And so what I do today is, um, and what my good friend Gideon Powell down in Texas does, we... Shout out Gideon. Shout out Gideon. We, we buy a bunch of copies of the Bitcoin standard. Again, I can't, you know, what I started to do, and, and thank you, Safe, too, is... Um, if people like people have to have a willingness to want to know, um, because otherwise you're just talking into a brick wall. But once somebody's intellectual curiosity is peaked enough to go read 300 pages, then I tell them I'll answer any question that you have. But here's the book that that sets a baseline. And, and once you have questions off that, but but education is just a slow process. And I think in my own experience and everybody's experience, people come to you know unlock those mental blocks in different ways and so it, it just takes time but also recognizing that people don't have two years to stare at this and that um the you know i think that was something great that square did when they came out you know again it was only a 10 or 15 page a little children's book it was just a little children's book to to try to educate people on what bitcoin is and, and what it isn't um again it, it, it's more the um the interest and being invested in the space is that education's a piece of that and that more people need to be doing it. There's guys like um, Michael Goldstein and, and Pierre Rochard that, you know, aggregate information at the Nakamoto Institute. Couple of fucking legends with an incredible website there. Yeah, those guys, a <laughs> little bit of a rough crowd, but <laughs> <laughs> they'll, they'll educate you. They'll educate you and they'll be funny while doing it. Uh, shout out Pierre and Michael. You guys have the best snark on any platform uh, yeah. that I've ever those guys can chill on Twitter, yeah, like nobody's business. Yeah. U.S. dollars down sixteen percent today. If you didn't, if you didn't realize it, <laughs> I actually saw that because Bitstein <laughs> tweeted it. Um, no, and that's that's one thing you realize when you get into Bitcoin, though. It is like intellectually stimulating, and again, this is something I harp on on this podcast: is like money is one half of every transaction that you make in the world. It's a very important tool, potentially the most important tool that we humans use, and it's important to know what it is uh and i i think what you did with ender's game and your knowledge of the fed and trying to spread that understanding of what they're actually doing and their misunderstanding of what they're doing is very helpful to leading people to the question of first asking all right what is money these people are fucking this up so bad what are what are they fucking up and how is it fixed so right and it's not i think that one of the biggest misnomers is that it's a collective hallucination uh, hallucination or hallucin- no, it's a yeah. tool. It's it, it's a tool, it's and a it's t- also I think Pierre talks about this. Probably his definition is probably the best. It's a social consensus. Mm-hmm. Um, we are identifying. But people people get social consensus and uh, collective delusion. They intertwine those and make them interchangeable, but they're not. Yeah, it's yeah, and in my view, it's not a hallucination. Safe does a great job of talking about this in the, in his book, where he goes through the history of money. And one of the things that I took away from it was that. Um, 
you know, whether it was uh, rye stones or um, seashells or, be- or glass beads, and I know that he relied on some of the writings of Nick Zabo, um, is that it was always some form of technology that, that led to the demonetization of something else. And so the way I think about Bitcoin is we're using the technology that we have available today to demonetize gold. Gold had, again, these aren't my own original thoughts, but it's something that I leveraged to, to better understand Bitcoin as reading safe, is that um, gold had its limitations. And, and Bitcoin really tried to solve the, um, the problem of money, but also how to build on um, the the flaws of gold and, and the principal piece of that was how do I create this in a decentralized way and gold was very susceptible to being centralized and so um, again it's not an easy thing to understand and it takes time but um, education is a hard process and people just have to relate it to both their own experiences their own real life experiences with access to knowledge yeah no you're uh, you're um, comment on like the bastardization of the cold standard reminded me of uh somebody we've been talking about a lot this podcast is hike with his the only way that we'll ever be able to fix money is to take it out of the hands of the government some sly roundabout way and bitcoin is that sly roundabout way i would say could Uh, still fail could still fail could definitely still fail um but it is a sly roundabout way chance that we have and are actively working on yeah and it's really i think our our best chance and and there's another quote that i um it was a book that roy sabag the guy who founded gold money or bitgold um, steered my way and it's it's a book I don't even think is in circulation anymore I had to go and buy it. a used one on Amazon for like $90 it was called The World in Debt but there was a um, there's a quote in that book that I that has always stuck with me that talks about how um, the reliance of one man's trust in another man's promise is one of the slowest conquests of civilization and it's this idea that while um while decentralization and taking away a centralized party's ability to create money and that money is really best dealt with on the free market and that the reason why Bitcoin works is because it's decentralized and because it's censorship resistant is incredibly important. But there's a whole amount of disinformation out there that we're now going to decentralize the world and that Mm -hmm. um, trust is actually not a bad thing. It's just a really bad thing when it comes to our money. And we've learned that through history. But again, not not a lot of people have figured that out and that going through the process of understanding money understanding bitcoin will be core to, to people you know having a greater appreciation for that no this is something that tom garenbone brought up last week and that is actually something that we should always think about when trying to apply these systems to the way they fit in our world like bitcoin as a money makes sense uh as anarchy like governance via anarchy because it's a global tool um whereas if you're trying to reallocate to a community a local community maybe like some socialistic tendencies uh make sense on like a local community level but when you try to scale that up from from local to state the country to global it just doesn't work and trying to figure out uh which schemes whether it be decentralized decentralization with bitcoin on a global scale makes sense for money Whereas um, centralization on a global scale, we're finding out in our our current uh, uh, regime, monetary regime, may not be as advantageous. Yeah, I think people having you know ownership of private businesses and ownership of private property, and you know again when you think about the complexity of supply chains, and you know basically if you, you know if you thought about com- very complicated supply chains and ones that involve capital goods, a lot of companies rely on other companies to to provide them, um, you know high quality you know, 
goods and materials and they rely on those partners in a trusted way. And that's inherently a good thing. Like you want people to have ownership economics and to specialize and to have division of labor. That's essentially what money allows you to do. And so it's that idea that decentralization and censorship resistance is a really important quality in money. Um, but that everybody also needs to understand that we don't need to put beef on the blockchain or, um, <laughs> you know, so long as Dropbox is a reliable, you know, partner in, you know, creating, you know, centralized file storage, we don't need to have a decentralized file system. Now, are there other ways or, you know, things that need to be decentralized? I think so. But a blockchain isn't the solution for, for those other applications. The blockchain was a specific data structure that allowed us to decentralize money, but not beef. Yeah, so if you're out there trying to blockchain the world, uh, just... Just take pause, think about it, think critically about it, and uh, yeah, get back to first principles. Read your Hayek, right? So for, again, let's end it on first principles. First principles are important; they're imperative. I think a lot of people outside of Bitcoin in cryptocurrency do not have a solid first principle mindset. Uh, I would argue that Bitcoiners do, and this is exuded in the the conservatism through which uh, the development team works and then through which the advocates work and, and trying to condense the message into something very simple and understandable. Um, Parker, it's been a pleasure. We're a mi- an hour, 21 minutes in. The temperature has fallen about 15 degrees since we've been sitting up here. The sun is gone. It went to Chile to reminding me why I need to get back to Texas. So <laughs> got a flight back to Austin. Uh, when you guys are in Austin, come and visit us. I can't wait to visit. Um, do you have a parting note for the freaks? Anything you want to let, let them know? Give out the Bitcoin standard. Help educate people. Um, check out what we're doing at Unchained. Read Safe's book. Um, anything, that, anything that you can do to um, help create value in, in Bitcoin or promote Bitcoin, I think, is a positive thing. And... Uh, Look forward to seeing you guys all in Texas sometime soon. Well, I look forward to, to making it down to Texas. And Parker, thank you for what you do. I'm a huge fan. I've learned uh, an immense amount over the years from conversations with you, and I'm, I'm uh, very appreciative for, for your company, as always. All right. Appreciate it. Peace and love, freaks. Peace.